Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. This is Bill Glasgow. I'm Senior Vice President and Head of State and Local at the Volcker Alliance. I'm joined by Susan Wachter, Co-Director of the Penn Institute for Urban Research, our co-sponsor for today's special briefing. And like every week, we have a very special, special briefing uh, for you today with some terrific guests who are going to look at the role of federal aid and further federal aid, if it's coming, for states and municipalities and how states are going to budget, how states could make use of, of money, how to conceptualize this. We have a lot of debate between the House and Senate right now on when and whether and what to do. So let me just tell you a little bit about the, the format of today's uh, today's call. We've left lots of time and we will get to that very soon. After the call, the proceedings, uh, the archive proceedings will be up online on the Volcker Alliance website and the Penn IUR website. You can start with VolkerAlliance.org a couple hours after we finish the call. And what we aim to do here is be strategic. We want to give, uh, give our attendees uh, really directions uh, what kind of questions to ask, what kind of data to, to look at, how they plot their course in an extremely stormy sea. So I'm going to uh, surrender the mic right now and turn it over to, to Susan Walker, who's going to introduce our first special guest, uh, Joe Torsella. Uh, Susan? Thank you so much, Bill. It's a pleasure to co-sponsor this special briefing with you. It's particularly at these very critical moments. Uh, we have six weeks or so for budgets, that have to be done on state levels. And right now, Senate is considering bills that may help break or make these possibility of going forward in these very troubled times. And it is my pleasure to bring to the conversation today, Joe Torsella, who is current and stellar treasurer for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and who is navigating some very truly difficult financials right now. Joe, please give us your your views on how to go forward. Sure. Good morning. Good to be with you, Susan. Thank you, Penn. Thank you, Volcker Alliance and Bill, for your good work and welcome guests. And thank you especially for making this today's event audio only, given that I'm in a place where barbershops haven't been open in eight weeks. So my headline is that at the outset of this, I assume like a lot of other treasurers, that I was worried principally about liquidity and the next two months. And at this point in this, I am much more worried about income and the revenues and the P&L statement and, frankly, the next two years. A couple of prefatory remarks. First, always worth remembering that this is still very much a public health emergency and that those costs um, and that those numbers put all the other numbers, which can sound staggering because of all the B's and T's in front of them, into perspective in Pennsylvania, we are at 51,000 COVID cases and, and uh, 3,100 deaths, which is sort of the place we need to begin and end thinking about this. Second, for better or for worse, in my view, very much for better, states have been on the front line of fighting COVID-19 and will remain so. Um, we've seen much more of a state-by-state -state response to this than, than a national federal response. So that I hope that leads us to the obvious conclusion that we need to equip our fiscal frontline responders with the same kind of urgency and determination that we are, we have tried to equip our frontline physical and healthcare responders. And the last point is, you know, we, Susan mentioned we are six weeks away from budgets in most states. There is a just an enormous uncertainty quotient with this right now. I'm talking to you from a region where the cases have plateaued but have not dropped. They're well away from where they need to be for what we may call a reopening. So I think everyone is, uh, to one degree or another, trying to factor in you know, so many of the of the real unknowns. Uh, but as I said at the beginning, this my first concern was apart from how do we operate in this environment was was around liquidity. We at the beginning of March, state of Pennsylvania, because of the seasonal pattern 
was at the point where we, the treasury was lending the general fund from special funds that we are fiduciary of about uh, slightly over a billion dollars through an, an internal borrowing arrangement we have that in normal times is very elegant and useful, saves the state money, makes the treasury money and avoids the need to do something more cumbersome like a TANS or some sort of commercial line of credit. In the context of that, when this pandemic hit in earnest, our first issue was how do we get the state liquidity it's going to need until the end of the year? We fairly quickly extended that line of credit essentially to uh, the very end of our fiscal year um, and melee caused by the municipal rates going haywire, particularly the normally sleepy rate to which we attach to this. We capped the rate at 2% when the muni markets were at Five, five point something at one point. And we also found a way to drive liquidity to the healthcare system, which was burdened by, you know, not having any kind of elective income at the same time we're preparing for this onslaught of cases and ultimately found a way to get about $700 million out to Pennsylvania hospitals and healthcare institutions in terms of short-term relief. But as the days and weeks went on, what became clear is that there were just these and are these extraordinary and unprecedented pressures um, on almost every aspect of state finances. There is is and has been and continues to be a dramatic decline in revenues. The April revenues were about $2.2 billion under where they should be. The projections for the year or for, or for the remainder of the year are by decent kind of forecasters somewhere around and probably north of $4 billion out of a state budget that's approximately $33, $34 billion, and that's all happening in one quarter. A historic rise in unemployment claims to 1.7 from you know, a, a vastly lower number. The impact of the deferral of, which was a very sound and sensible policy step the feds took to defer tax filings, but when they did it, they deferred it out of most states' fiscal years, and most states like Pennsylvania are in one way or another keyed to that. The, that completely dysfunctional for a few weeks municipal market, um, which zoomed up by you know, four or 500 basis points almost overnight, and far too soon to talk about investment performance, um, but quite clear, I think, that when we do talk about it, will not be a happy story in, in the short run. Now, in Pennsylvania, we've done a lot of things. Like most states, I think we have a mixed record. We've done some things very well, other things less well. We have had begun to make real progress for the first time in a decade on our rainy day fund, which at one point funded something like 20 minutes of government operations. We made a deposit into it last year of $350 million that we were quite proud of. That's about nearly four days of operations. But that amount that we were proud of last year in the context of the tsunami of fiscal pressures you know, looks very different. And I will venture to say that no state's rainy day fund is going to be sufficient for the size and scope and universality, the pressures that are being felt on revenues. We had made, uh, instituted a new pension benefit plan for employees going forward that was popular with no one. So the sign probably of a, of a good compromise called the most comprehensive uh, such plan in the country by the Pew when, when they looked at this. And we were working hard to bring down our investing costs, as well as being in our fourth year of making our considerable ARC payment. All of these, now I say we do some things well and some things badly, and, and the Volcker folks always let us know exactly what those things are, which is is uh, good and important work. We continue to have too much reliance on one-time measures and building our budgets. But my point in talking about some of the things that we've done really well is that all of those dramatic changes that I detailed that have happened None of them can be laid at the feet of Pennsylvania policymakers. They all are in this exogenous shock from this truly unprecedented and historic pandemic that we're facing. And I think that is true across the country. So our concern shifted to how do we shape a, you know, appropriate federal response? Because there are things we can do, and I think we're doing them at the state level. But by and large, um, the answer to this is going to lie with some sort of appropriate federal response. And I want to say clearly and at the outset, there's a lot that I give Washington credit for in the speed um, with which they acted on some things and the recognition partially of what our problems are and some really unprecedented steps they've taken, particularly the Fed in, in the muni market. But in those, in the kind of two broad, broadly relevant responses, the CARES Act and the MLF facility, the Fed, I think there is a mixed bag. There's some real helpful things and there are also some things that don't go far enough. The CARES Act funding 
which we in Pennsylvania received approximately about $4 billion, has been a huge benefit in terms of dealing with liquidity issues and has been very helpful to us and to, and to other states. What remains not less helpful is that what it does not yet cover, um, and the guidance makes this clear, is it does not cover the cost of lost revenue, which frankly is the cost of COVID-19 from a state perspective. Yes, there are you know, a variety of specific costs. Yes, there are economically stimulative things that can be done with that money, but the the principal impact of this, I think, from a fiscal point of view, is going to be that lost revenue, and the only way to make that up is going to be some sort of a, some sort of action from Washington. Um, on the uh, municipal lending facility by the Fed, again, tip of the hat and lots of credit to Fed and Treasury for realizing the need for some action, for doing something they hadn't done before, for, I think, working in a way that stabilized that market um, when it was in free fall. But some parts of that make it, frankly, not as useful as it could be, including the restrictions states have on borrowing that extends past the fiscal year, as well as the requirement to certify that you have no other options. So I'm not sure, I'm sure in some ways there may be less than meets the eye there. My takeaway from all this, and I think I speak for many of my colleagues on a bipartisan basis, in one famous political campaign, they used to say, it's the economy stupid, not calling anyone stupid here, but my sign for this moment would be it's the revenues. The principal fiscal challenge to all of us is going to be this profound, well beyond a normal recession impact in lost revenues. And having some flexibility and addressing that is going to be key. The lesson from where I sit from 2008 is we rescued the markets, but we did not do enough to rescue the states. And not having done that, the austerity that they needed to resort to impeded our recovery by years. So if we want this to turn out to be when we are past the health crisis, a recession rather than a depression, we need to face up to that. Applause again for what Washington has done, but we need to deal with that revenue issue. And second, and I'm eager to hear from Governor Haslam, there are a lot of things states have not done in the intervening 10 years, in part because of the fiscal hangover created by the great financial crisis. One of them has been failing to face up to addressing the exploding cost of higher education and the skills gap we have in the workforce. One of the states I think that did a wonderful job of that in the aftermath of the GFC was Tennessee with the Tennessee Promise Program. I will say beyond addressing revenues and deciding that we're not gonna let this turn into a Great Depression, we also need to frankly square up to some of these larger economic challenges that have fiscal implications in the health of our states because the health of our states depends on the health, financial health of our families. So if we want to, and I hope we will have a happier call two years from now, I think that our national and state policy needs to be to step in to help states and municipalities with the same kind of determination that we are stepping up at the state level to fight COVID-19 and to embrace this as an opportunity to deal with some lingering issues. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Joe. That's succinct and challenging and uh, absolutely fascinating. We're going to return to some of the financing issues uh, later on uh, in the special briefing. Reminder that you can find the archived version of this on the Volcker Alliance or Penn IUR websites. I'll give some more details later. Bill Haslam is uh, not only former governor of Tennessee, but a director of the Volcker Alliance, trusted and respected advisor and uh, certainly an extremely able pilot as he steered Tennessee through the recovery, which was really, really slow nationally. Joe just sent you a, a wonderful shout out. Governor Haslam, tell us about, about how you conceive of the federal government's role in helping the states pass the CARES Act, especially given the reluctance of some members of, of uh, your party, the Republican Party in the Senate to provide aid. Well, thank you. And uh, let me tip my hat to Joe. That was a wonderful summary and a great lead in to what I would like to say. A uh, couple of quick points. We do have a revenue problem. And one of the points I would emphasize today is this is not a short term revenue problem. We have a short term revenue problem in that we put the economy in a coma for 90 days and you suck all that revenue and all that demand out of the system. You are going to uh, you're going to see what we're seeing now, states and cities falling woefully short of their revenue projections. But I think we have a longer-term revenue project uh, problem as well in that 
you know, we know this is not going to be a V-shaped. I think even to say it's a U-shaped recovery is being optimistic. Um, I think it's going to be a, a U that tends a little bit more toward an L. It's going to take us a while to get back. Even if there's, and I think there will be, and I'll talk about in a minute, more federal help coming. As you think about your budgets this year, don't just think about this year and how do we get past the short-term problem because I, my, my strong assumption is that next year's budget will be difficult as well. And so when we think about the, how does that relate to the federal government and the possibility of getting more aid that is not restricted only to COVID-related funds, I think there's a couple of keys like I said, I think the um, the Republicans in the Senate particularly, obviously since they're in control there, are going to want to see some things addressed. Joe brought up uh, in their budget that there's still a lot of one-time money funding operational expenses. We all know the issue with pension plans around the country. My sense is you're going to have a Senate that says, prove to us that we're not using this money to fund structural imbalances that you had before. I think that in addition to the argument McConnell's been making about providing businesses some liability protection from folks who say, well, you made me come back to work and then I got sick. I think those will be two of the key negotiating points. And I think what states need to be able to show is we have a real plan right now to begin addressing those those structural imbalances. In Tennessee, I became governor in January of 2011. We were obviously moving out of the recession by then, but as, as everybody remembers, it took a while for revenues to start coming back. My predecessor, who was a Democrat, Phil Bredesen, had done a really nice job of making some cuts and adjustments to the budget, and then had laid out a plan for kind of a phase two, that if we have to, we can cut these things as well, that gave us a roadmap uh, to come in um, and apply. His kind of thoughtful, surgical approach to that, kind of a phase one of we know we can do this right now, phase two of we can do this, it will take us a little longer to, to implement, and then phase three of if we have to, we can make these cuts was incredibly helpful. And I would recommend everybody be doing that now of we know we can cut this out of our budget now. Here's some other possibilities. And if this lasts for um, two years, here's a phase three that we can do. Some of the things that we did are things that you are seeing and going to see business, businesses doing more of. We looked hard at our personnel costs and we looked hard at our real estate costs. And I can assure you every business in the country right now is saying, wow, we've, we've been working at home and it, it's worked out a little better than I thought. Maybe we don't need as much office space. When we were in office before this, we already put plans in place to do with a million plus less square feet uh, for the state and um, to have a certain number of workers work from home prior to the whole COVID challenges. I think those are things that are, will help uh, Tennessee weather the storm. But I I would just recommend everybody start thinking in terms of phases of cuts we can make now, cuts that we can make with some lead time, and then cuts we can make if we absolutely have to. I think in terms of convincing the federal government that here's why you should act, everybody gets that there's going to be a tremendous revenue problem. I think the what they have to show is we're not using federal money to fix things that states haven't had the courage to fix in the past. Uh, so with that, I will stop and look forward to questions on the back end. Well, thank you. I, I think actually, Governor, you you answered Dick Ravitch's question. So I'll I'll just foreshadow the the, the Q and A period a little. He asked, "What's it going to take to convince Mitch McConnell to uh, to join hands with Nancy Pelosi in an aid program?" I think you succinctly spelled out the formula. We'll discuss that later. Our next guest is Stephen Klein, a well-known figure at a National Conference of State Legislature. Uh, budget officer meetings. He's been the, the chief legislative fiscal officer for the state of Vermont for many, many years. What many people don't know is that Vermont is the only state in America that does not have an explicit balanced budget law or constitutional provision, but there is no state, there is no state that follows that principle more closely than Vermont. Other than its a structural imbalance in, in pensions, Vermont is extremely conservatively and carefully run 
quick to make adjustments to address uh, revenue shortfalls, and uh, I found extremely constructive as well. Stephen, tell me, how is Vermont going to, to maintain its, uh, its reputation as well as its essential services? When we talked earlier, you mentioned also that, that the state is doing some internal borrowing. Tell us about that and about some of your longer-term concerns that we discussed earlier. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Bill. And I just uh, really appreciate what Joe and Bill Asimov stated before. We're all coming at it from different perspectives, but there is really a commonality here that this is a major event. And uh, I just want to first express sympathy for the many people and families affected by the uh, loss of economic well-being, loss of loved ones. And, you know, and on the one hand, we're dealing with the fiscal issues, and the economic issues, but there's a real tremendous uh, impact on people. The thing is, it's, a, it's an event that's going to have long-term impacts on us. And as we think about what we're doing in Vermont, we're trying to deal with the immediacy and some of the issues you raised about short-term borrowing and just how do we get through the close of a fiscal year and using the money to affect immediate changes, as well as realizing that this is going to change the economic landscape as we see it. And that'll be part of what I go through in my, my talk. I just want to read first a statement that the House Appropriations Chair gave to the newspapers or Vermont Digger, which is one of our online publications. And there's a lot of money out there that can be put to a lot of good things, but we have to stay within the rules. And that's going to be frustrating for some because the availability of this money can fix serious problems, which are very clear due to the crisis we're in. And making them fit the exact rules in the Treasury may prove difficult. This is a, it's a very, it is a lot of money. Uh, they've, uh, it's really, the federal government did a good job getting money out quickly. It's really been targeted toward direct financial pressures on the state of the, of the pandemic. We spent about 200 million of the or 20% of our total funds, and that continues to grow. Dealing with this whole financial pressure and getting money out is not simple because, as in most states, most of our state uh, leaders are in home in their own homes and they're uh, working from remotely. As are, uh, and so it's a very the legislature is all working remotely. We've changed an institution from where it's been to now being able to vote remotely, and uh, we're just seeing sort of rapid change in government and. Um, but it complicates things. It's slower and issues like that. As this has been mentioned before, there's created large revenue holes for the state and local governments, and the federal relief is non-existent in this area. We have about a 433 million revenue loss projected for FY21, on top of 146 million for this year. And for us, that's about a 17% reduction from what we expected in 21 uh, when the year began. So this is like building a budget with a 17% down is going to involve a lot of reductions, but it's also um, pretty uh, beyond anything we've done before. And we're really hoping that there's a change and the federal government frees up the money for federal relief. That doesn't include property tax impacts, which we expect to be problematic for local governments and the schools. People have lost their jobs and the ability to pay property taxes is an uncertain element of that. Plus our forecasters uh, have said, uh, as, as others have mentioned, that we see these revenue problems existing until, through 2023. 2021 is going to be a bad year, but the recovery will not be short. And that's just a, something to keep in mind. Finally, we this whole thing is falling on the world as we knew it. And so it's weakened a number of state institutions. Earlier this um, month, or actually probably end of April, the state college uh, chancellor said he was closing three schools. He, they couldn't, uh, with the number of students dropping out, with a, the potential population coming in and just financially, he couldn't keep them all open. That's since been reversed. The chancellor has resigned. You know where, but it's the underlying problems are really there. And I think that, uh, as Bill Hassel mentioned, Governor Hassel mentioned that we need to deal with those. And their future is uncertain. We have one mental health facility and one hospital that are on life support. We're keeping them going because they're critical to our system. But not everybody out there, not every private sector entity, has the same balance sheet. And some of them are fairly weak coming into this downturn. So we are uh, dealing with that. And I think one of the things we'll see coming out the other side is throughout the private sector, you're going to see that and through the public sector, you're going to see institutions that make it and survive and institutions for many reasons that don't. Um, one of the things we're experiencing is before the pandemic, our online sales was about 11% of our total sales tax revenue. Online sales have grown exponentially. And our thinking, and this could be wrong, that we're going to level out closer to 16 or 18% or more. And so what this means is that business that used to be done in downtowns and centers will now be online. 
And that's going to change the nature of our downtowns and change the nature of our businesses. So there's, um, you know, there's also the secondarily level fallout on pension funds with the market decline, hospitals being kept uh, for coronavirus patients and not being able to have the same work going on in, that they would normally do, and just the the schools and what we're going to do in the long term for that. And I guess the concept here that I just want to say is we are going to re. It's not like we're going to bring us back to where we were before. We're going to be in a new world. And as we think about how to use the money for short term activity, we need to think about what that long-term world is going to be and how do we best set us up to succeed in that. And so it's just a, a lot of our time, it goes into planning, strategic support, redesign of institutions and services. The money doesn't really fit those directions. And I think we're hoping that that changes. Finally, I just want to say that I can't tell you how much of our time of leadership has been on how to use the CRF money. It's just a, the, the situation where the, the law had very little guidance, had three major points. The guidance by the Treasury was began, then we had FAQs, frequently asked questions, it has been updated, but it, it's a changing tableau. And it's uh, everything that comes out, there's more questions. The Treasury has been helpful in that they've gone out and met with different groups, the comptrollers, treasurers, and NCSL, and each time they may tell them things which give us another inkling. But it's a very strange process, a lot of money, and uh, a changing world. And so I just... Uh, that makes our work even that much more difficult. So it's a, a serious issue. It's going to be with us for a long time, and I welcome questions down the road. Thank you very much, Steve. That was wonderful framework for thinking about the short-run challenges and the long-run as well. And now we turn to Bob Inman, David Skeel, both professors at Penn, and both, uh, we're proud to say, uh, faculty fellows of Penn Institute for Urban Research, have been in a position to think about the long-term issues of state and local and the long-term crisis. But yesterday in the Washington Post, they wrote an op-ed to deal with the crisis right now and what Congress should do. Bob, what should Congress do? Susan, thank you. And uh, thank you, too, for the Institute of Urban Research and the Volcker Alliance and, and Bill for asking me to, to participate. Yeah, I think Susan's got my role in this uh, conversation set up, I think, uh, very nicely. My focus as both as a professional economist and uh, on this particular issue is design of national policy. And uh, this clearly is what the issue is uh, at the moment. This is a national disaster, not a problem specific to any particular state or locality, but to all of them. And uh, what uh, uh, David Skeel and I have done in our proposal that's in the Washington Post is uh, really try to offer something that Washington can do that the state and local sectors can then uh, utilize for the provision of services and the protection of, of their revenue base. The policy that I'm going to discuss has really two parts to it or two objectives to it. The first is the insurance objective, basically trying to cover as both uh, the governor and, and Treasurer Torricelli have stressed the revenue losses, and uh, so that's objective number one. Uh, really, we interpret this as an insurance problem. This is a national disaster. The national government will insure state and local sectors, in our case specifically for revenue losses, and then we've added an important increase of obligations on the unemployment insurance trust funds. And then the second objective is the one that the economists would focus on primarily, which is uh, the role of getting of, of the state and local sectors in getting our national economy back on the road. And this would be the stimulus function of the proposal. So the proposal will try and do, will try and do two things. First, uh, ensure for the losses that we've experienced. And then secondly, try to stimulate the economy uh, to return to full employment. On the insurance side, the proposal has three parts to it, a part, and, and in many ways we characterize it as what every good insurance policy ought to be trying to do. The first is cover the losses, and we focus, and hopefully this will be the, a basis possibly for a compromise uh, between the Democratic and, and Republican sides of the Senate and the House. We've tried to focus on only covering losses that could be directly and specifically related to the COVID-19 uh, epidemic. The second component is a deductible, which all insurance plans have. And the idea here is that we do not want to uh, replace rainy day funds. We're going to ask the states to make a, their own contribution through the rainy day fund and also through their contributions that exist in their unemployment insurance trust 
trust fund. So money that comes from the national government will have a deductible for those particular sources of precautionary savings. And then the third part of the proposal is, is a familiar copay proponent uh, or component. And here we're going to focus on really the, the real powerful stimulus effect of Medicaid funding and will advocate the uh, increase in the federal matching rate of 10% that was used so effectively in the uh, stimulus package of 2009 and onward. So that's the proposal. Very quickly, what's been done so far at the national level is uh, there has been, as was mentioned by uh, Steve Klein, money that has come into the states already for expenditure relief. And that fund, those funds, and, and as the Treasurer has emphasized, those funds have been really very, very helpful. The other side is the emergency lending proposal, the municipal liquidity facility. And again, that's uh, the primary function of that is not to, to help states and localities over the longer term, obviously, but to make sure there's not a liquidity freeze up. And I think to that degree, the proposal uh, has been successful. And then the important part of which there is a significant amount of funding in the CARES Act uh, for Title II, which is um, extensions of the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund. There's additional funding that can be used for benefit expansions, additional funding for folks who are self-employed. And, uh, and the biggest component is a $600 increase in the weekly benefits. All of those have implications for the state unemployment uh, uh, positions going forward. But what is missing, all of that is additional money. What is missing is the foundation, the fact that, that we've gone from, nationally gone from last year, 2019, something on the order of 5 million uh, beneficiaries of unemployment insurance to the coming year where the number is going to be close to uh, to 30 million. So what we're talking about there is coverage for richer benefits and extended coverage for folks who had not been in the system, but not for the core unemployment impact that the um, the COVID uh, policies have had on our economy. So our proposal, what does it consist of? As was stressed, both by the governor and the treasurer, there's going to be a huge impact, uh, sales and income tax uh, revenues and in particular. And um, as Mr. Klein stressed for Vermont, 17% losses. It's uh, uh, nationally the numbers that we're getting from uh, colleagues who predict the impact on the GDP on the order of 20%. So the numbers I think that we're working with jive pretty closely with the Vermont experience. That's going to, we calculate the impact nationally will be $275 billion in lost sales and income tax revenues uh, through fiscal year to, uh, ending in, in uh, on June 30th, 21. So this is a one-year uh, estimate from today through that uh, June 30th, 21, $275 billion um, in lost revenue. There's an additional one, again, that was emphasized on fee revenues, as uh, Steve had said about the Vermont colleges. Certainly the University of Pennsylvania, or, I'm sorry, Penn State is going to suffer significant fee losses, uh, tuition losses. We estimate that nationally at $95 billion. So together, 275 and 95 is a, 375, a $370 billion revenue hit uh, to the state and local sector. These include local as well as uh, state taxes. And then we've deducted what should have been rainy day fund set aside, so about 2% rather than 20% fall in GDP. And that adds up to about uh, $12 billion. So we subtracted what should have been put in the rainy day fund and are left with $358 billion in revenue replacements. We would allocate that money according to the state's unemployment rates and COVID cases. The second big component that we have is... Uh, the bump up in number of people who will be claimants over the next year uh, from about 5 million to nationally on the order of 30 million. That's a six-fold increase in unemployment. We uh, estimate that expense to be about 130 billion. We allow for the fact um, that uh, there should have been in the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund a sufficient amount of money to cover 5.2 million, the original uh, 2019 levels of uh, unemployed. So we're left with $159 billion to cover $30 million, but we're not going to cover the $5.2 million who have been covered with appropriate uh, savings on the part of the states. We're left with $130 billion. So 358 and $130 billion uh, gives us something on the order of uh, $488 billion in revenue losses. We then have the last part of the proposal is uh, the copay component and that is for Medicaid, and that would be 10%. We estimate those costs. It's very hard to estimate specifically those costs, but we think they'll be coming in close to um, uh, something like $65 billion. So 
from an aggregate point of view, the aggregate amount of money, a sensible budget const- uh, obligation or contribution from from the nation as a whole, or from the Congress as a whole, would be something on the order of $500 billion. But the important part of our program is that it is extremely targeted in its use. And I would argue it makes good sense from an insurance point of view, a national insurance point of view, as a program that is economically compelling. So it's not money to do any darn thing you would like to do. It's targeted money at the revenue losses, at the unemployment increase, and at healthcare expenses. So that's the proposal that Professor Gale and I, or Professor uh, Skeel and I, have put together, and uh, we're hopeful it might be the basis of a serious conversation within Congress. Susan, thanks. We can open it up, please. Well, thank you, uh, thank you, Bob, and thank you, Susan. It's very constructive proposal indeed, and uh, one worth debating. We've got a bunch of questions from attendees. I also want to remind you, if you want to recycle back to any of the stuff that's discussed today, number one, we will try and post a link to Bob and uh, Bob and Professor Skeel's Washington Post piece, as well as uh, everything will be on the uh, recordings that are on the Volcker Alliance and uh, Penn IUR websites. In addition, uh, for any media who are on the on the line, these are all on the record briefings. Neelia Stevens, our head of media at the Volcker Alliance, will be very happy to help you with follow-up. And on the final slide, we will uh, we'll have her all of her contact information. So first, I'm going to go to a, to a, to a question that both Treasurer Torsella and Stephen Klein brought up, which is about cuts. This is specific to Pennsylvania, but you could substitute any state here. Is there a sense of the depth of cuts that need to be made to, to cover the, the revenue shortfall? Uh, this was in Pennsylvania, such as K-12, higher ed, healthcare, pensions. And I guess the real unknown here is whether there will be additional federal aid to cover some of these gaps. But I'd like to hear from Joe and Stephen, if we could. Sure. And I guess I would you know, kind of disagree with the premise of the question a little bit. I mean, mathematically, you heard Steve's estimate of what Vermont's looking at. You heard our estimate of where we think you know, what, what our current projected revenue shortfall is. But you've got to look at that against the background of a state budget in Pennsylvania, where we have a very high percentage of uh, fixed costs uh, to begin with and where we, coming out of the great financial crisis, have disinvested in things like higher education. It's been stated on this call by almost everyone, worth restating, that the decline in revenues that we're looking at has been wholly unforeseeable, immediate, unprecedentedly large, and not in any way kind of localized to any one state. It's the result of a national emergency and the step that we're taking to combat it. If you assume that the answer is we need to cut state budgets to make that up. I just would say that can't be acceptable, shouldn't be acceptable to us at a time when we have historically high unemployment, where we should be seeking to stimulate, not further contract the economy. And frankly, where those state budgets we're talking about and state workforces we're talking about are the, the principal the principal line of defense at a governmental level in this pandemic. That's why I think the the refrain I'm hearing from treasurers across the country and policymakers in both parties at the state and local level is we we do have to recognize that this revenue with agreeing with Governor Haslam's point, we shouldn't be replacing revenue that covers up kind of bad fiscal behavior by states pre this crisis. Um, But we have to recognize this crisis the largest fiscal consequences of it has been that rainy day fund. Now, to be clear, I mean, our governor here in Pennsylvania took immediate steps, which weren't popular in terms of you know, in action on workforce, on freeze on purchasing and hiring, in addition to you know, what I think is now record on his part of you know, very careful complement control and looking, you know, diving into very tough issues like you know, instituting new new pension benefit plans going forward and making really difficult art payments. Having said that, I think everyone would agree this is you know, the kind of classic presidential answer. All options have to be on the table. And absolutely, you know, let's look at ways we can, uh, in this brave new world, you know, find all kinds of efficiencies. But I think we have to begin by understanding that it would be counterproductive for us to say, let's try and Let's try and wait to cut our way back to solvency, counterproductive, both the economic level and, and the level of dealing with the healthcare pandemic we face. 
Well, Stephen and, and, and uh, Bill Haslam, tell me about your your take on uh, on cuts and and the health of the uh, health of the economy. Seems that so, public universities are generally one of the first areas to be cut. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, historically, what has happened is the higher ed has always been seen as the one place that has another funding source that obviously K twelve and other areas don't, and so because of that, more of the cost has been pushed ultimately on students and parents. Um, and uh, I think that's historically what's happened. If you look at states over time, as their Medicaid costs went up, their funding for uh, higher ed went down almost in direct correlation. So it is a tempting target, if you will, in state governments. I personally think it's a bad target. I think our, you know, we know in Tennessee, a, a huge percentage of our future job opportunities are, are going to require a post-secondary degree or certificate. and uh, to cut back funding at this point, I think would would be a mistake. Now, I think it is fair to go to higher higher ed uh, institutions and say, "Tell me what you're doing to control costs on this." And to say, "This is a three-legged stool. You have, you know, what what the student pays, you have what the state pays, and you have what it costs the institution to operate." And so, what we did is go back and say. We're going to reward you for how many people you graduate, not how many you enroll. And then we also want to see you make the adjustments to your budget that we've made elsewhere. I think if higher ed will do that, my view would be it would be foolish to cut back on funding. I would agree. I just want to, first of all, say that cuts are going to be part of this. You don't want to waste any crisis. It's an opportunity to reform and change. The We as a state are sort of putting in motion a three-month budget, which will be an, maybe an 8 to 10% cut, maybe half of what we see is the potential downturn, but it's only for three months. We'll come back in August and do a full budget, and hopefully by that time, we'll see some change on the federal aid. I would say higher ed is, is a big issue. It's a huge economic development engine, critical to regional economies, and you don't want to see it reduced, but it's uh, we have a lot of school. We have schools. We have a, also a, a changing mix of um, students, and it, it is one of the things we need to reconsider and, and restructure. So, uh, I would agree that we, you know, you can't cut your way out of this. This is a really major state problem, and we don't want to. You really want to use this as an opportunity to to build a stronger future. Bob Inman, I'd like to just interject very, very quickly. The evidence on what leads regions to grow is unequivocal. Uh, strong national-oriented, research-oriented universities are really the engines of significant regional economic growth. So I think it would be a serious mistake if uh, state legislatures saw that as a, a cheap and easy grab for revenues to maintain other services. This is a really important long-run investment and ought to be considered a high priority, particularly post-recession, for continued state growth. So I really stress the importance of state uh, state university systems and uh, state systems that are research directed are really important for economic uh, long-run economic growth. Let me just uh, jump in to say, I certainly reiterate that. And I want to go back to the underlying point of Joe's comments, as well as the governor and, and Bob, you as well, and our state legislator, Steve, this is a time where we have to structure our recovery as a nation as a whole. And the United States is uniquely vulnerable because our most of our public services are funded at the local and state level. If we have an austerity solution to that, it will be an austerity solution that prolongs a recession and potentially makes the recession into a depression. So we need to address this from an insurance perspective so that we can get the economy growing so we can fund all sorts of needs, particularly the need for people to have an income, an everyday income to cover their expenses. We can't do that if we put state and local governments in a prolonged austerity mode. That's an excellent point, Susan. And as regards um, universities, after the last recession, Arizona State did a very interesting budget simulation game that I, I, I would love to see uh, universities and legislatures and executive offices roll out again, where basically you could model the, the impact of, of university budget cuts on the economy and on revenues in different ways. It was a, a fun, fun game with a very serious point, and I think we're going to see a lot of uh, a, a lot of modeling coming up. We have a couple of questions, uh, which is really for the uh, 
this, this may be best addressed to Joe Torcello, but I encourage uh, others, uh, Bill, certainly to, to jump in. It's just on the, the governance of the, the CARES Act. A number of people, including uh, the, the Massachusetts State Auditor, are, are asking about the guidance, the grant guidance. Should state audit agencies be assessing program integrity? From uh, Another question comes from uh, the Association of Government Accountants. Who's responsible for oversight to make sure, make sure that the funds are used is, is designated? What are states doing to, to oversee the money, or is this, is this a federal concern? It will become both. I think in the kind of federal system, we probably have 50 different answers to that question. In Pennsylvania, we, Treasury, we have a, a kind of unique pre-audit authority, um, which we're applying very scrupulously uh, to thinking about these funds. I know different states have set up different processes. I think three observations. Number one, the guidance, which as Steve says, has been very general, you know, gets increasingly specific, and that's changing daily. And I, I, I give them points for that. Each new answer is helpful. But the principle of this has been very broad guidance at the beginning, combined with the knowledge that there will be, you know, there will be auditing on the other side. Um, so I think what that's saying, at least to us, is to design what we th- think is an appropriate process, because one has not been spelled out, and have that in our own minds be prepared to withstand withstand the two years of argument that will happen when this crisis is over about how everyone used the funds. I think every state should sort of consider its own process. I think it is a good thing that there's not a cookie-cutter approach, but I don't think – I think that is an invitation to states to design what they think is sensible, not a, a green light for doing whatever they wish. Thanks very much. I'm going to just uh, address one very, very quick question. We've had a couple of questions on on using the the Fed's municipal liquidity facility. Next week's special briefing will be entirely devoted to that with a terrific, uh, a terrific panel, including the heads of Citibank and uh, and BlackRock's uh, municipal units, Emily Brock from the Government Finance Officers Association. So we won't spend a lot of time on that. But the questions today are. Basically, what, what kind of obligations can you use the, the Fed credit for, and do state balance budget requirements stand in the way of using Fed credit to balance the budget? I'll leave that for all of our wise heads or any of our wise heads to, uh, to, to pick up. I'm not certain I can be more help on that, so I'm going to quickly pass off to uh, one of the real wise heads. This is Joe. I'm not claiming title to the wise head here, but I do think state I don't know that balanced budget requirements per se get in the way, but I do think most states have a constitutional or statutory restriction on the use of a TANS or uh, RANS or whatever you want to call it that do make it complicated to use the facility. Again, I will say I'm gratified by the Fed's willingness to do something they haven't done. I think it had an impact on the market. It is far less clear to me that it will have the desired impact of actually being you know, useful to jurisdictions. And I do not hear from my colleagues, very many who believe that they can make it be useful for them, in part because of those restrictions, in part because the restrictions within the MLF about you essentially have to serve, you have no other, you have no other viable option and the announced intention for there to be some form of penalty pricing. So I think the the verdict is out on this, but as of today, it seems clear to me, and again, a, a good first step, uh, but that what it did is stabilize a market as opposed to provide meaningful relief to states. Good point. And we will cycle back to that in next week's session. One quick question before we hit the top of the hour and close. Uh, this comes from Thomas Savage at Alec, noting that in the 1830s, the, the federal government rejected a bailout of states. So if Congress doesn't go along with uh, with a bailout or whatever you want to call it, supplemental financial aid to replace lost revenues, can this result in states adopting more strict balanced budget rules, or uh, as they did in the in the 19th century, or is it the other way around? Do they does the aid come with some kind of uh, restrictions like we discussed earlier? You know what happened at the turn of the century is a totally different world than we're in today. Uh, we're in a a world of a tremendous integration nationally, and and what happens in when we think of our, when we open up our state and how we open up, it's affected by what happens in Massachusetts and uh, Connecticut and New York. And I don't think we can look at that as uh, a relationship. I would just say that I, we're pretty focused on 
balanced budget, we're also really, I mean, I think all of us are in Vermont anyway, are focused on the notion of how do we build a stronger economy and state and that that's our key responsibility. Bob, Bob Inman, just interject quickly to, to mention Steve's point is that uh, the 1830s and the 1840s, the, the source of the, of the enormous uh, state fiscal problems at that time were really very, very specific uh, uh, games being played with, uh, with uh, state investment and railroad bonds. And uh, there was nothing like a national disaster in the way that we're looking at this particular setting. They, they were really very, the issues were really very targeted at uh, four or five states. They went to Washington and asked for relief. Washington, I would argue, wisely said no way. The consequence was default on those bonds. The, the losers specifically were European investors, Belgian and French investors, which meant uh, saying, saying no support for the bonds made it a good deal easier. But the consequence of all of that was that anybody who entered the bond market after the uh, 1840 defaults pretty much had to adopt a balanced budget rule which I would argue uh, from indeed research that we've done on this problem has over the last, uh, really since the 1930s, has over the, the last uh, 60 or 70 years been a very effective constraint on uh, really excessive state and local borrowing. So there will be a problem always on the margin, uh, but the ability of states and cities to consistently roll over their debt is becomes really quite a set of isolated events. Puerto Rico, Detroit, and the few state cities in California are examples, but against the whole scene and, and levels of funding in the state and local sector, they're really quite small. So the balanced budget rules have been exceedingly effective. I have no reason to doubt they'll be effective in this setting uh, as well. I want to thank everybody uh, for attending. And number one, if you have any follow-up questions, all the contact information will be posted along with the, uh, the archived uh, recording on the Boker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.